first stage of the modern Chinese economy, understood from a developmental state perspective, is starting in 1949 and ends roughly in 1978 when the first stage of the developmental state moving the Chinese agricultural economy from agriculture into in industry was set and then subsequent to 78 the move commenced from the first stage to the second stage of moving the economy also into international markets by focusing on exports as well as then later moving up the supply chain. Here in this episode we focus first on the initial stage of moving the agricultural economy into industry. To put the events of post-1949 in modern China into perspective, if understood from a developmental state perspective, we can refer to Haggard and his discussion on the historical origins of the emergence of the developmental state. Haggard suggests that the conditions for the developmental state to emerge are typically associated with war, especially not just internal instability but also external threats. The presence of an external threat, according to Haggard, provides an impetus towards the centralization of power, as we have seen in the case of China, where after war and civil war, uh, after the uh, Chinese expelled uh, colonizers, including the Japanese, as well as foreign powers uh, from China, there was a lot of centralization uh, and putting into the public hands uh, factories and means of production previously controlled by foreign forces and that led to one type of centralization of power and secondly um, if it is an internal uh, war if that is resolved uh, the regional powers uh, if they are reduced uh, this will also lead to a relative increase of central power the presence of an external threat, however, I think is also important, according to Haggard, because the presence of an external threat suggests that as the centralization of power grows, the autonomy of the state grows, which suggests that there is an increase in the autonomy uh, in the insulation of the state from for instance, the private sector, as well as for external forces. But uh, if the autonomy of the state is too high, sometimes the state could turn uh, into a predatory institution that can seek rent and become very extractive from the economy and thereby undermine growth. Haggard is suggesting that the presence of an external threat can constrain the autonomy of the state to the extent that it allows the state to remain capable despite being autonomous. And the literature on the emergence of the development of the state also relates to the literature on state formation. And uh, this is an apt 
uh, opportunity because when we talk about modern China, uh, the national independence is very much linked to the formation of the modern Chinese state. Of course, it had long-running legacies from uh, the imperial period and the traditional uh, Chinese economy. Nonetheless, uh, the modern Chinese state is qualitatively uh, different from the traditional Chinese state, uh, despite having certain uh, parallels and legacies. Haggard refers to Kohli, K-O-H-L-I, 2004, suggesting that uh, the state structures typically result from high concentration of power and coercive capability. This could be tautologous because uh, a state could be defined as the monopoly of the means of violence, according to Max Weber. So therefore, uh, describing a state structure as being the result of high concentration of power and coercive capability could be a mere tautology. More usefully, Kohli is suggesting that in the case of former colonies, quote, anti-colonial nationalist movements were one potential organized force that was capable of altering the basic state from the inherited forms from colonialism, unquote. In some other cases, as Haggard is suggesting, Korea and so on, there were some policies uh, by the Japanese that were in effect leaving the Korean economy with uh, certain forms of coherent bureaucratic structures, as well as ties to the private sector, as well as massive uh, and massive apparatus that could hold down certain class challenges from below, uh, unquote. That is partly paraphrased. And the argument by Kohli is that the anti-colonialist nationalist movements were overthrowing the colonial government and then they were uh, holding the monopoly of power and therefore they could adopt development state policies because they had the development of the economy of the national economy in their interest after gaining national independence and sovereignty whereas in the case of the colonizers or the imperialists they had different uh, utility functions and different pre preferences and different objectives uh, with regards to the colonial economy Next to this, you have the theory of Tilly, 1985, T-I-L-L-Y, sometimes referred to as Bellicist theories of state formation. Bellicist here refers to bellum, which is the Latin form of war, suggesting that uh, typically war is leading to state formation. And this type of Bellicist theory of state formation including developmental state formation, is also found in Johnson. Uh, in Johnson, in his book on the MITI, the Ministry uh, for Development, if you like, in Japan, where he refers to the origins of the modern Japanese state uh, regarding the Meiji Restoration as being the start thereof. Haggard here quotes the origins of the developmental state in Japan could ultimately be traced back to the Meiji Restoration when government and businesses were faced with imperial encroachments in the region uh, 
and the risk of unequal treaties that would consign Japan to a semi-colonial status, similar to China's. External threats focused the attention of both government officials and the private sector on political as well as economic catch-up and even achieving great power status." Unquote. This arguably can be said to apply also to China at the start of the First Opium War, where China did face being reduced to semi-colonial or colonial status. However, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the strength and the embeddedness of the traditional Chinese uh, institutions did not allow uh, China to adopt a Meiji-style restoration developmental state uh, response to external threats and the institutional strictures were slowly being peeled back over the course of a century, which the Chinese regard as the century of humiliation, and that culminated eventually, uh, not just in the unequal treaties, in the uh, defeat in the Japanese uh, Sino War, but then ultimately in uh, the freeing of those constraints uh, with uh, 1949, to which we turn our attention now. In the following, we will discuss the sequence of events in the Chinese economy between 1949 up until around 78. The preparation of the developmental state in China to emerge is the period between 1950 and 1952, where according to Norton, 42% of all arable land were redistributed. That broke the power of landlords, both in terms of the economic as well as political influence. Second, the state took over many factories in urban areas, thereby controlling the means of production, as well as also taking over banks and the financial sector. The Subsequent first five-year plan from 1953 to 57 implied a Soviet-style command economy which had a lot of centralization of decision-making. And in the following we will describe the command economy system that is described in Norton. The command economy system is described in Norton by the idea of limiting consumption and increasing saving. By this method you can increase investment a lot and therefore fund gross fixed capital formation. Norton is quoting statistics whereby contemporary poor countries today having average investment rates around 20% of GDP. However, by 1954, China already had an investment rate of 26%, which is quite high. The investment was used to increase the amount of physical assets, as well as accumulate inventories, as well as conduct replacement investment for depreciating capital. And ever since 1954, China maintained a very high investment rate, well above 20%. The investment was 
quite focused on heavy industry. Most of the investment went into industry and around 80% of that in industry went into heavy industry. The average annual real growth rate of investment was around 8% between 1952 and 1979. However, Norton quotes official statistics whereby only three out of those around 25 years, only three years, actually had annual real growth rates of investment between 4 to 12% when the average is 8, which suggests that there was a lot of variation, a lot of, a lot of standard deviation with a lot of outliers if you like so in most years they were either very low or very high growth rates sometimes more than 20% growth rates and sometimes much less than 4% and even negative rates suggesting there was a lot of instability in terms of uh, investment cycles swimming, swinging up and down in the period of 1952 and 1979. The overall industrial output grew by 11.5% between 1952 and 1978 per year and industry's share of GDP went from around 18% to 44%, so more than doubled. Industry share went from just below 20% to over 44%. And agricultural share of the economy of total GDP went from about half to less than 30%. And that is measured at current prices. And a lot of new industries were created during that time, including motor vehicles, chemical fertilizers, electric electricity generation equipment and so on and there was a focus of the uh, state by which it tried to raise industries with a lot of upward and downward linkages and this harks back to the ideas of the developmental state and the demand complementarities and externalities we discussed in the previous episode. The institutions via which this was achieved and how this was achieved uh, is relating to, if you like, the characteristics of a e command economy where you have a lot of state ownership of large factories, uh, transport and communication firms and collective ownership of land and the farm economy. You have production targets, you have resource allocation including material balance planning suggesting certain planning of sources and uses of commodities and also price guidance to set relative prices uh, by the center in order to incentivize uh, certain sectors including heavy industry where you would have a relatively high price for the output of heavy industry a relatively low price for the output of agriculture so to incentivize the move of resources into preferred industries that are useful for the overarching developmental goals of the country. Then, as mentioned previously, the banking system is controlled to the extent that the credit is provided to selected industries and enterprises and there is an increase in saving, partly by 
financial constraint where the rates that are paid to depositors are low compared to a competitive equilibrium, which provides savings to the industries that are being fostered. In addition, uh, there is public saving. Uh, the surpluses of government controlled firms are generating fiscal revenue. All of these institutions uh, over time were being recast and whittled down to some extent. For instance, production targets and resource allocation uh, was slowly phased out. The price guidance was also then moved into a dual track system later on uh, with some prices being set uh, by the center and some prices being allowed to freely float but at the beginning the command economy had many of these features described above in contrast to the soviet model the soviet command economy model um, as described by norton the chinese model was relatively speaking less centralized and less tightly controlled to the extent that local government had greater decision-making power relative to the soviet russian case and the allocation of resources was limited to around 600 industrial product varieties compared to around 60,000 varieties in the soviet model this describes if you like, the, the basic structure of the so-called command economy uh, that was adopted with the first five-year plan from 1953 to 57. And included in that plan was also the import of capital equipment from Russia that would help with uh, moving to heavy industry. Uh, Russia not just provided capital equipment, but also uh, capital, human capital in the form of uh, assistance of advisors coming from Russia that would advise uh, the Chinese economy on many production techniques as well as organization. And in addition to this, there was, besides the general focus on intensive industrial development and heavy industry focus the agricultural sector was slowly being cooperatized meaning that farmers would work in cooperatives rather than working in households later uh, after the first five-year plan there would be uh, eventually move towards a more decentralized system and a system that would be less heavy industry based but for now during the first five-year plan there was still a heavy focus on heavy industry as well as centralized uh, power as well as centralized decision making With the second five-year plan from 1958 to 62, there was a general intensification of the big push into industry, but at the same time uh, a form of decentralization where the countryside was organized into uh, communes where there was more decentralized decision-making and in those regional communes, countryside communes, they were tasked with 
coming up with construction projects as well as providing social services as well as starting rural small-scale uh, industries. However, uh, this um, second year, second five-year plan um, countered a lot of challenges as well as natural uh, adverse conditions including uh, adverse weather, uh, including also improperly built water control systems, as well as uh, policy mistakes uh, as far as the misallocation of resources and directives are concerned. In addition, there were also international uh, political changes. Uh, for instance, 19, in the 1960s, Khrushchev withdrew Soviet assistance from China, and all of these factors together uh, led and combined to a rapid decline in agricultural output which eventually ended in a famine and then the industrial output also fell by uh, dramatic numbers by 1962. And this period is referred to as the Great Leap Forward that lasted from around 1959 to 1961. And after the tragic events uh, surrounding uh, that period, in 1961 to 65, there was a re-centralization. So after having moved from a centralized over to a decentralized economy, or attempts at moving into a decentralized economy, in 61, after the Great Leap Forward, there was a re-centralization, and the industrial heavy industry uh, Soviet model of the first uh, five-year plan was combined with a more balanced type of growth path where uh, agriculture was underlined and uh, refocused on. In addition, uh, there were a change in the investment priorities. Um, these were reversed uh, following the Great Leap Forward where the agricultural sector then receives first consideration, uh, light industry second consideration and heavy industry third consideration according to Mark Farquhar uh, as he mentioned in his book in 1997. And in addition to this there was some continuation nonetheless. Uh, the spread of rural small-scale industries continued including the emergence of coal mining, hydropower, chemical fertilizers and agricultural machinery plants. In addition, uh, after the uh, withdrawal of assistance by the Soviets, there was the imports of technology from Japan and Western Europe, including uh, capital goods. So we can see here that the developments were not one of immediate full-scale import substitution because there were imports of capital goods uh, that the Chinese imported in order to raise their technological standard. And subsequently uh, from 1961 to 1966 according to Norton agricultural and industrial output grew around 10% and it exceeded the peak of the Great Leap Forward. Uh, however uh, there was no basic change uh, from the early 1960s in terms of the second five-year plan 
on the basic ownership or the basic development strategy or the basic decision-making structure, uh, despite uh, some changes as to the investment priorities. Subsequently, uh, Norton goes into detail also on the uh, third front and the cultural revolution, uh, details of which can be found in his book. Uh, the third front was a inlet uh, refocusing where industry was being tried to develop not just in the coastal areas or in northeast China but also in the central regions, central provinces in China but those attempts were later slightly reversed and Norton also goes into detail with the cultural revolution which he suggests is uh, not that relevant from an economic perspective uh, in contrast to a political perspective. Norton concludes his uh, discussion of the 1949-78 period in modern China with suggesting that the level of consumption uh, as a result grew by around 4.3%, uh, but per capita consumption grew by around 2.3% annually, given the increase in the population. Uh, the creation of employment was relatively low, because some of the very capital-intensive industries um, did not absorb a lot of the employment that was released when the economy started to move away from its previous agricultural focus. The heavy industry, however, basic infrastructure was established. There was a lot of uh, basic industry that was put in place. In addition, there was a lot of socialized consumption, according to Norton, uh, meaning the basics of human capital in terms of health and education uh, were very high, and that led to good conditions, according to Norton, for rapid economic growth to take off eventually uh, after the transition post-1978. Then in 1978 there was the third plenum and after that there was a transition in the developmental state type of growth model in the Chinese economy. There was a focus on increasing exports, there was a continued investment in transport, communications, coal, iron, steel, building materials, electric power and so on. That was not a change, but what was a change is the focus on exports as well as the focus on increasing the growth rate in light industry and reducing investment or maintaining investment in heavy industry. So the addition of light industry was a novelty post-78. In addition, there were changes in agriculture. There was a contract responsibility system adopted in agriculture whereby households could keep their output above a certain uh, level of an output target as well as a dual track pricing system that would eventually be adopted whereby certain amounts of goods were priced uh, according to 
the central decision making and uh, above that above target they were subject to market prices and were more or less freely flowing then there was also post 78 policy coordination for industrial development in terms of upgrading restructuring and strategic global positioning because of this outward focus of the economy and um, in addition to the opening up of the economy to exports uh, the inward uh, or FDI openness also increased uh, there was encouragement of FDI via joint ventures as well as setting up of internet international trade zones in special economic zones and so on and these details post 78 we will get into in the following episode for now it remains to be said how to put this into context with the previous discussion of the developmental state we can see here that uh, the developmental state uh, was more or less born in 1949 and uh, if you like prepared for uh, between 1950 and 1952 where a lot of land reform equalization of land holdings and centralization of power and nationalization of means of production occurred which allowed then for the first stage of the development state which is the move of agriculture uh, of an agricultural economy into the industrial economy and this stage one could say was uh, perhaps the focus of the period between 1949 to 78 uh, however as we've seen with statistics quoted by Norton uh, it was marked by a lot of policy experiments uh, policy mistakes but also a lot of instability in terms of at least marked by the investment rate uh, sometimes shooting up and then sometimes shooting down investment being subject to very heavy business cycles and policy cycles and that being said um, the stage two somehow was if you like being prepared for during the first stage and the first stage later foundations for then the subsequent takeoff and as we've also mentioned in uh, previous episodes besides uh, the uh, the foundation being laid in the period between 49 to 78 in terms of uh, heavy industry being fostered and very high investment rates uh, being achieved uh, before 78 which led the foundations for the post 78 takeoff uh, besides that there were also seed varieties uh, chemical fertilizers uh, irrigation systems and so on being built infrastructure being constructed all of which is very much conducive towards uh, in addition to the human capital base, the basic health, the basic education, the basic literature and so on, all of which is very much conducive towards uh, the uh, transition uh, of stage one to stage two, which would be addition of uh, light industry, uh, focus on consumer products uh, with a focus on uh, being competitive in export markets, as well as uh, FDI that would allow for a lot of transfer of technology and adoption and learning and re-engineering and so on for the move into export markets and that would be the start of the second stage in 
uh, Chinese economic history starting with 1978. As a preview, this second stage later was transformed further, if you like, in, into a third stage where one would move not just into light industry and consumer goods, but into um, consumer goods that are of higher value added uh, quality as well as more high-tech uh, types of goods which uh, one could call industrial upgrading or moving up the uh, supply chain which could be said to be stage three which um, modern China is still in in that stage uh, in the 21st century. But in the next episode, we will focus on first uh, the second stage, post-1978.